This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we're going to begin our series on one of the most entertaining and perhaps controversial playwrights of the 20th century, George Bernard Shaw. Uh, He's often referred to as just GBS, and uh, he's an unusual character. Even his critics say children adored him, but beyond that, he gets such a mixed reception. Half of the critics don't take him seriously, basically saying he was nothing but a comedian with no real depth. This school of thought claims uh, he would say anything for a laugh and use shock value for a cheap laugh. And the rest of them claimed he was all rhetoric, that every single character was just another version of him. They saw genius in his satire, and every piece was uh, really a developing argument directed at its audience and the value is not that he was always right but his willingness was to always engage and all of his characters are really him on a soapbox often uh, proclaiming socialism or pacifism or feminism of course both of these views could be true i mean i think so (laughs) shaw was a showman who loved to shock and all but he was also a social warrior and You know, what is interesting about Shaw is this huge personality. He was a force that was just thrust upon the world. Well, he represents uh, well, you know, that noble collection of celebrated Irish writers that we so love. In fact, he's the first author to win both a Nobel Prize as well as an Oscar in his lifetime. The Oscar, by the way, was for the screenplay of Pygmalion in 1939. If you've been listening to us for a while, you may remember that we really like Irish authors. There's William Butler Yeats, another Nobel Prize winner. A couple months ago, we featured the Irishman who predates Shaw by a couple of centuries, Jonathan Swift. But there's lots more. Ireland has produced so many notable writers. There's Oscar Wilde. There's Samuel Beckett. There's James Joyce, who wrote Ulysses. That's just getting started. (laughs) (laughs) It's incredible, really. Uh, When you think that Ireland uh, is relatively the same size as the state of Indiana, 
uh, here in the United States, but it has produced a lot of great artists, you know, not just writers, but other artists as well. For example, rock bands. Of course. My favorite topic. <laughs> I have to say, you uh, 2 and Thin Lizzy call Ireland home, and they were pretty uh, successful. Well, I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but, you know, people say that trials produces great arts, and maybe that's one explanation. There's no doubt Ireland has suffered its fair share of heartache and problems over the centuries. I mean, just in Shaw's time, there was famine and political, economic, and even civil unrest, things that both Yeats and Swift talked about in their own works. You know, depopulation, I mean, incredible poverty has been part of the story of Ireland for centuries. That's so true. Uh, you know, and as a result, many Irish left. Uh, lots even came to our place, Memphis. Actually, we have a deep Irish community here. Uh, but in Shaw's case, when he was 20 years old, he left home for the big city of London, not Memphis. Well, maybe it was easier to get to, to London, or maybe he never heard of Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when we read about his early years, um, it's obvious that Shaw's childhood, uh, his parents' relationship was not easy or conventional, even by today's standards. I mean, his formal education was poor, uh, but they were Protestants in Ireland. And even though his father was incompetent and basically a worthless drunk, George was raised to know that he was better than his neighbors. And I quote Shaw here. No Shaw could form a social acquaintance with a shopkeeper, nor with a Roman Catholic. And naturally, the Shaw parents stressed that fact on their children and thereby, thereby made errant snobs of them. <laughs> well, if you can't be anything, maybe you can be a snob. True. Uh, his mother wanted to be a singer. She took voice lessons and even invited her music teacher to move in with them. Uh, you know, hard to see how that worked out. But they were bohemian anyway. At some point during Shaw's teenager years, the music teacher moved to London, and so did his mother, taking with her his two sisters, and he was left with his father. Um, she wanted to pursue music, and so that's what she and the girls did. One of Shaw's sister, sisters died of uh, tuberculosis pretty early on after the move, but the other made a career as an opera singer. Uh, well, there you go. I mean... It matters, I think, when we see Shaw's um, body of work that his household was such full of music people. I mean, he loved music. He taught himself the piano. Uh, really, he taught himself everything he ever knew. You mentioned that he was not given a good education by either parent, but he did credit himself with having a self-education that he got by visiting the National Gallery in Ireland. I mean, in the course of his life, he was to be a music critic professionally, he admired Mozart. He talks a lot about Mozart. He references him in, in his book. And I think the word, you know, bohemian, to describe his growing up years, might really be the right word for him. As he transformed from having that arrogant social consciousness to really developing a strong social conscious. Hmm. Nice pun there. I know. Uh, I tried. <laughs> You know, his young adult years were focused on the arts, um, especially when he moved in with his mom after two years after she moved out of his dad's house. And uh, he developed a great interest and support of Karl Marx. He firmly believed in the socialist ideas that he watched unfold in Russia and Germany and Italy. Of course, this was all pre-World Wars, we'd like to add. Yeah, you know, he believed in people treating others equally, and he 
seen, there's no doubt, grave injustices in Ireland and, and believed that strong leaders could just fix everything. He controversially claimed that if England had been in the same shape that Germany was in in the 20s, that they would have been fortunate to find someone as competent as Hitler in rebuilding systems. Shaw admired many of the dictators of his day that today we know we're going to become mass murderers. But he knew them on the front end, and he didn't know that that's what they were going to be. He thought of them as efficient leaders, and they were attacking corruption, and he admired that. He honestly had faith in them, and and I want to quote him here. And he said, dictatorship is the way in which government can accomplish anything. Of course, when we look at that perspective from hindsight, we know that he was going to witness some of the worst mass murderers in the history of humanity. But he didn't know that those were mass murderers when he was standing up for them and advocating, you know, Mussolini and Hitler and, and Stalin. He didn't advocate mass murder. He backed off his support from Hitler earlier rather than later when he realized that the Germans were persecuting Jews. And he even said that, and I quote, the Jewish business in Germany is a disgrace and has destroyed any credit the Nazis might have had. You know, I want to point out he was not alone uh, in in that view. I mean, Hitler was so popular previous to, to the Holocaust that he was on the Time magazine's cover as Man of the Year. You know, it's hard to think about that today. It is, but that's the reality. Uh, you know, uh, and that, of course, is um, that's a quote that turned out to be an understatement. <laughs> I'd uh, say so. When the story of the death camps became known to the world. And uh, Shaw saw redistribution of wealth as a mercy and a kindness. And I don't know this for a fact, but if I were to guess, I imagine uh, much of what he saw being raised in Dublin and all the unmerited poverty around him compelled him uh, really to see strong leadership as the answer. And Shaw's idealism, uh, unfortunately, did eventually fade to cynicism because what he eventually saw unfold before his eyes was what often happens when men are given limitless power, you know. But all those dictators uh, he had put faith in, after they seized power, they became tyrannical, intolerant, murderous. And by the time he died, um, Shaw was very extremely cynical. Well, the truth, it always was the fact that even though he did hang out with anarchists and extreme socialists, first and foremost, Shaw was a pacifist. He was ardent about that, just like he was about his socialism, but he never advocated revolutionary overhaul. His socialist activism, unlike you know some of the things we saw in, in South America, centered around evolutionary socialism. He wanted England to transition over time to a more socialist economy, which in his defense has happened a little bit, of course, over time. But for over 12 years, that's a long time. He spoke at least once, usually twice a week, discussing and, you know, propagating these socialist ideas. He was very involved in this society, a famous society called the Fabian Society, and he wrote lots of their materials for them. The Fabian Society is one of those things, you know, I've always heard of, but I really don't know exactly what they do (laughs) or are. You know, it's what today, what we call a political think tank, and it still exists. And just quickly, a political think tank is where uh, 
philosophers and writers get together to apply political uh, ideas to the issues of the day. Uh, so you can still go to their website right now. In fact, it claims on the front page to be the oldest think tank in Great Britain. And uh, during Shaw's day, their strategy was to bring socialist values to Great Britain, you know, not by forming a separate political party, but by the members asserting their influence on the ones that already existed. The, the plan was to create change from inside uh, the existing political system and developing strong leaders in both parties committed to reforming a system they saw as already corrupted by self-interest. And, you know, we think of Shaw as being first and foremost a playwright, and of course he was. He wrote over 60 plays, but that wasn't his only interest. I mean, he was a journalist, a music critic, and very much a political activist. And, you know, much more than I think about when, uh, when you're watching his plays. Well, I completely agree. You know, a friend of his, a man by the name of William Archer, tells what is now a famous story about when he met Shaw for the first time. And Archer says this really expresses who Shaw was. I mean, Archer found Shaw in the reading room of the British Museum with two large volumes in French of Karl Marx's, Karl Marx's book, Das Kapitais. But right next to him was an orchestral score of Tristan and Isolde. Archer says that expresses Shaw. He's both an artist and a social critic and really didn't see the difference between the two things. His art was how he explored his political ideas. It was his way to champion social justice. And in some ways, you know, that doesn't seem strange. I mean, the church has been using art like that for centuries. Hollywood tries to do it. I mean, lots of artists try to do it. But I guess what made Shaw so great at it is he figured out how to talk about political things without insulting his readers all the time. And that is a skill. I would like to point out he was great at insulting, but not letting you feel insulted. I know he said terrible things, but people enjoy his work and they just laugh. I mean, he could challenge the rich on feeling superior to the, you know, quote, undeserving poor through a character like Eliza. And we're smiling. He challenges what he calls middle class morality, which really he means hypocrisy through a character like Mr. Doolittle. And we laugh because he's hilarious. And when we see what he's doing, we know he's absolutely right. I mean, I'm using Pygmalion as an example, but all of his works work just this way. And even the things he says that aren't in his work work just the same way. Even the only tragedy he ever wrote, St. Joan, which is a play about Joan of Arc, does the exact same thing. (laughs) So are we saying, um, if this is your first time reading anything by Shaw, You should look out for some social and political commentary. (laughs) It's going to slap you in the face. In the preface of Pygmalion, he says that great art can never be anything but didactic, which is obviously not what lots of people think art should be doing. But at least when it comes to his art, no, you're looking at satire, just like Swift. He wants to point out a flaw in our humanity, and he wants us to address it. So um, if we're saying a play is satire and we're saying he's a political person, a socialist, uh, what's his message in Pygmalion? 
Uh, well, that's a great question, and one you may not see right away if all you know about Pygmalion is the movie or play My Fair Lady, which is all I knew for a long time, to be honest. And before I attack My Fair Lady, which I'm going to kind of do, I want to say that I love My Fair Lady. I love Audrey Hepburn, and I love the movie. I love the stage production. We just got through seeing it a couple weeks ago here in Memphis, and to be honest, that's why we're doing this series. So it's an incredible musical and very close to Pygmalion. Pygmalion, the play. Sometimes it's the very lines. Shaw's words are in the movie. However, Shaw would be turning over in his grave, and I suspect he has since 1956. I think he would be so angry, and he would have terribly sarcastic things to say about it, even if My Fair Lady made his estate more money than all of his other works combined. And the reason is it misrepresents one of his primary themes. Pygmalion wants to address and talk about universally accepted gender roles. Now, I've had a revelation. Oh, goodness. So, <laughs> the revelation's in the title, My Fair Lady. Well, one of the wealthiest, most upscale neighborhoods in London is Mayfair. I think My Fair Lady is a play on Mayfair Lady. Well, maybe it is. Well, that may be obvious. There may be people who actually know that. But anyway, um, you know, getting back to Shaw, he does seem to be asking what's the proper relationship between a man and a woman. And, of course, this is interesting in any generation. But in the 19th century, women were barely considered people under the law. I mean, it was very politically charged. And um, in 1912, um, that's two years before Pygmalion, Emmeline Pankhurst declared and urged her followers, those of you who can break windows, break them. Those of you who can still further attack property so as to make the government realize that property is as greatly endangered by women's suffrage as it was by the charters of old, do so. And my last words to the government, I incite this meeting to rebellion. You know, and after she said those words, the most conservative estimate suggests that over half a million pounds of property was destroyed. Oh Shaw did not see a woman as Victorian angels of the home. Uh, but what was he seeing? You know, Eliza is not a temptress. She's not a mother. She's not a muse. So what is she? Well, good question. I think he starts by saying, what is she not? And what she primarily is not is someone's love interest, which is why he'd hate the movie. Shaw went to a lot of trouble to make sure Higgins and Eliza do not get together. And the movie wants you to think they will. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, You know, and it only took six years after his death for them to rework the ending to allow for that. You know, uh, Shaw's thoughts on the woman question, which is what they call it that time period, were no secret. I mean, here's a quote from one of his essays on women. Women. Here's a quote from one of his essays on women. A woman is really only a man in petticoats, or, if you like, that a man is a woman without petticoats. <laughs> now, this is not what Victorians believed. Uh Here's another one that, that he made in 1932, uh, in other words, after World War One, The domestic career is no more natural to all women than the military career is natural to all men. 
You know, there are so many great Chauvian quotes. Here's another one. Motherhood is a means by which a woman regains the self-respect she loses through marriage. <laughs> That's typical, show. <laughs> I know. He's so funny. And he wants to make people sit up in their chairs, which is something that I missed when I watched the musical. Because the musical isn't near as funny as the play. It just isn't. And the play really is. I didn't expect it to be because when I read the play, I thought, what in the world? The political joke from 1913? How could that be true? But it can make you laugh even now. Ah, well, you know, another reason to read the play instead of just watching it is really all the extras that Shaw injects that, that are unusual. I mean, they aren't really stage directions. Um, they're commentary meant for a reader, not necessarily for a director or a producer. Right, which is something I didn't know when I watched the musical, but it's so true. In fact, we're going to read several of these, quote, stage directions from Act One today, and you'll be able to see what we're talking about. The other real uniqueness, for those of you who've only seen theatrical productions of Shaw's work, uh, is his affection for prefaces. He wrote prefaces to his plays, and that's just not a common thing. I mean, why would you write a preface when people are going to see the play? When asked why he kept doing this, this is what he said. The reason most dramatists do not publish their plays with prefaces is that they cannot write them. I write prefaces as Dryden did and treaties as Wagner did because I can. I mean, he considers prefaces a main feature of his work. And in the preface to three plays for Puritans, he explains it like this. He says this, I would give a half a dozen of Shakespeare's plays for one of the prefaces he ought to have written. So he's going to tell Shakespeare what <laughs> right. to do. <laughs> he's setting Shakespeare straight. Thank he goodness is. somebody did, right? You know, so just to be clear, in case you're wondering what a preface is, Shaw basically wrote essays talking about the ideas of the play as introductions to the actual work. Exactly. And in a preface to a different play, he gives this reason for the long and opinionated stage directions, which is, you know, the other feature that I told you about. And let me read what he says. Anyone reading the mere dialogue of an Elizabethan play understands all but a half a dozen unimportant lines of it without difficulty, whilst many modern plays, highly successful on the stage, are not merely unreadable, but positively unintelligible without the stage business. It is not a whit less impossible to make a modern practical stage play intelligible to a reader by dialogue alone than to make a pantomime intelligible without it. <laughs> Oh, I guess that's a strong opinion he's asserting. Everything there. he says is strongly yes. worded. Uh, you know, so if we read his preface, he'll make Pygmalion intelligible to us. Uh, so I guess we better read it. Uh, don't you think Shaw comes across like a funny, slightly angry, sarcastic old man? Oh, every time I read something he says. And yes, if you're reading the play, don't skip the preface. It introduces the idea of phonetics. And you can hear that sarcastic old man voice in your head the whole way through. But before we comment on phonetics, I want to revisit the woman question again, because it's Shaw's starting point. And he takes his cue from an old Greek myth that most of us wouldn't even know today if it weren't for Shaw. Gary, talk to us about the story of the other or older Pygmalion. (laughs) 
Oh, so I get to tell it, huh? Yes, I'd rather you tell it. Uh, nice. Thank you for throwing me under the bus. <laughs> I know. Uh, you know, I want to state this is not my viewer story. It is established Greek mythology. You know, so apparently there was once a talented Greek sculptor from the island of Cyprus named Pygmalion. Apparently Pygmalion had had some bad experiences uh, with the options regarding prostitutes, and he became disgusted with women in general. (laughs) So uh, he decided women were flawed creatures, and he vowed never to waste any more of his precious life on them. So far, losing him is no great loss to womankind. But. Well, true. And, and so he gave them up. And instead of trying to find a perfect woman, he thought he would just make one. Oh, I can see the jokes now. He makes the perfect woman. Beautiful. Silent. Always where you leave her. Mm, no comment on that. <laughs> Anyhow, the story goes that he worked so long and so diligently on the statue that it became more beautiful than any woman could ever be. I mean, she was perfect, and he named her Galatea. In fact, he fell in love with this perfect statue he'd made. He'd bring Galatea gifts. He'd talk to it. He'd dress it up. He'd put jewelry on it. He kissed it. He caressed it. All that. Oh, and don't forget that that word Galatea means she who is white like milk. (laughs) You know, all this comes across, uh, you know, just kind of slightly offensive to us, but apparently, you know, not to Aphrodite in the old Greek world. And she was the goddess of love and sexual desire. And uh, she feels sorry for Pygmalion. And when Pygmalion goes to her temple to sacrifice a bull during the festival devoted to her, she offered him a sign by having the flames go up three times. And he knew he'd seen a sign from the goddess, but he didn't know what it meant. And when he went home, he went over to Galatea and he hugged her. But when he did, she seemed warm. And he kissed her and her lips were soft. He touched her veins and they weren't solid, but they were lifelike. He had made the perfect woman and Aphrodite had turned Galatea into a living being. And the end of the story is that they were married and lived happily ever after. Hence the connection to our story. In Shaw's story, this is exactly what Higgins sets out to do. He wants to be Pygmalion. Just another detail for those who love the musical, the original title for the movie My Fair Lady was Lady Liza, but Rex Harrison, who played Professor Higgins, objected because he didn't want the movie to be named after the female lead, so they went with My Fair Lady. Uh, But the point I want to make here is that of the emphasis given to the play, the title Pygmalion is very different by calling it My Fair Lady or Lady Liza. And of course, Eliza is the central character in the play, the one who changes over time. But that's not the first point to note. We are to be noticing if Higgins changes. Does it work to be a Pygmalion? Is this a thing that you can do? Can you craft a person Good Lord, uh, mini helicopter mom has tried to do just that. (laughs) But in our story, Higgins says yes, and he will do it through phonetics. Hence, we get the second big theme in the play, the role of language, the role of pronunciation in our world. In his preface, Shaw says, quote, It is impossible for an Englishman to open his mouth without making some other Englishman hate or despise him. And of course, where he goes with this is that pronunciation stratifies us into society and every resident of the South, which we are, 
is very well aware of that. I mean, there are many a Southerner who will claim they didn't get a job over there at Southern Draw. Uh, uh, but I can't say that I haven't found myself judging people by how they sound. And if you're not from the South, you may not know all Southern draws or accents are not the same. Georgians talk one way, Virginians talk another way. Here in Tennessee, we can tell what part of Tennessee you're from just after a few sentences. We may can even tell what part of Memphis you're from. You know, Knoxville people don't sound anything like us. And all of this comes judgment, comes stratification. And the general rule of thumb is the stronger the accent, the more ignorant you likely are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is the general rule of thumb, uh, according to Shell. But of course, that's not a Southern thing. That's universal. uh, This summer when we were in Brazil, I hadn't been there a week before. I learned to tell who's from Rio uh, they add the SH sound to everything. I mean, I could hear it, and I don't even speak Portuguese, but there you were being able to stratify. <laughs> exactly. In Rio, instead of calling me Cris, which is how they used to call me, they call me Cris. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, of course it's ancient, too. Um, in the uh, biblical book of Judges in the Old Testament, there's the famous story of two warring tribes, the Gileadites and the Ephraimites. And uh, the Gileadites win, and they set up a blockage across the Jordan River in order to catch any escapees from the battle. And they'd ask every person trying to cross the river to pronounce the word Shibboleth. They knew Ephraimites couldn't pronounce the SH sound, so they would pronounce it Sibboleth instead of Shibboleth. Everyone who couldn't pronounce it, the, the SH, they were killed. So, you know, the stakes are pretty high on your pronunciations. Well, the Re- the Rio people could get through. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, uh, you know, they're not as high today. I mean, we're not killing people over their accents. But heavy accents, obviously, are still a problem. Everybody knew where he came from every time he opened his mouth. And there was prejudice in that. Eventually, Shaw did get rid of that heavy accent, but he intentionally kept his Irish dialect. He just moderated it. When we read the preface, he introduces his relationship uh, with a man by the name of Henry Sweet. And Sweet was a reader in phonetics at Oxford, and Shaw knew him personally. Well, Sweet was the inspiration for the character Higgins and in some ways was the impetus for the entire plot. Sweet wrote in his handbook in 1877, quote, When a firm control of pronunciation has thus been acquired, provincialisms and vulgarisms will at last be eliminated, and some of the most important barriers between the different classes of society will thus be abolished. Higgins says it in act uh, in his play like this. Phonetics is the deepest gulf that separates class from class and soul from soul. So for Shaw, as we'll see in the play, as well as in the preface, the problem with dialects or shibboleths is that they function exactly like they did with those ancient Hebrews. They just don't reveal our personal past or our present. They determine our future. Higgins claims, not inaccurately, by the way, that Eliza's Cockney accent as, quote, the English that will keep her in the gutter to the end of her days. You know, let's read the final paragraph of the preface so we can set the stage for our entrance into Covent Gardens so we can meet our main characters. I wish to boast that Pygmalion has been an extremely successful play all over Europe and North America as well as at home. 
It is so intensely and deliberately didactic, and its subject is esteemed so dry that I delight in throwing it at the heads of the wiseacres who repeat the parrot cry that art should never be didactic. It goes to prove my contention that art should never be anything else. Finally, and for the encouragement of the people troubled with accents that cut them off from all high employment, I may add that the change wrought by Professor Higgins in The Flower Girl is neither impossible nor uncommon. The modern concierge's daughter, who fulfills her ambition by playing the Queen of Spain in Ruy Blas and the Theatre Francois, is only one of many thousands of men and women who have sloughed off their native dialects and acquired a new tongue. But the thing has to be done scientifically, or the last state of the aspirant may be worse than the first. An honest and natural slum dialect is more tolerable than the attempt of a phonetically untaught person to imitate the vulgar dialect of the golf club. And I am sorry to say that in spite of the efforts of our Academy of Dramatic Art, there is still too much sham golfing English on our stage and too little of the noble English of Forbes Robertson. (laughs) And so, again, you see Shaw's sass on display Shem golfing on the stage. I mean, that's a ridiculous metaphor and, and something, you know, Fitzgerald will, will, will make fun of through the character of the great Gatsby on the other side of the ocean, by the way. But Forbes Wa- Robertson was a 19th century actor who is considered to be the best Hamlet there ever was. But let's remember, this is didactic. And didactic means I'm teaching you something, and he is. He's teaching us about the dynamics of phonetics, the misuse of morality to create unfair social hierarchies, but most importantly, the power of the human will, especially as it relates to women. But as the play opens, we're told in the stage directions that we're in Comet Garden at 11.15 p.m. If you don't know, Comet Garden, that's a touristy and an trendy fun shopping district today in london but that time it was a fruit and vegetable market in front of an opera house and a church it's raining and everyone's running around there are two women complaining because they can't catch a cab and it's in this context that he introduces his main characters eliza only she's called the flower girl higgins who's called the note taker colonel pickering who's called the gentleman I'll try to read Eliza's lines, but I want to point out, if you're not looking at a copy of the play, I'm sorry, this is going to be terrible, and you're not (laughs) going to understand it. He writes it at the beginning phonetically. There's letters taken out, words that are spilled like he wants us to pronounce them. He uses an upside-down E to indicate what he says should be the indefinite E, but I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce the indefinite E. So I'm going to try to read these lines. Uh, There's a lot of reasons why American playhouses are tentative about doing Shaw, uh, because it's hard to read the things that he says. But I digress. Well, uh, let me digress also. This is a lot like Mark Twain. Yeah, exactly. And Charles Dickens did the same thing. But let me, here he goes. Nah, then, Freddy, look what you gone, there. There's manners for you. Two old batches of violets tried in the mud. I'm not really sure. (laughs) That's terrible. But Freddie's just knocked her over and she's dropped her flowers. You know, I think what's most interesting about the introduction and what Eliza's character is saying is not what she's saying. I mean, in some ways it's supposed to be unintelligible, although more intelligible than what I just said. But 
we're we're supposed to see her. And there's a lot of commentary in those stage directions. Let's read the comments that Shaw makes about Eliza. Uh, I would like to point out, you didn't sound very much like the play we saw. I so. mean, it's horrible. I can't yeah. do it. <laughs> okay. She sits down on the plinth of the column, sorting her flowers on the lady's right. She is not at all an attractive person. She's perhaps 18, perhaps 20, hardly older. She wears a little sailor hat of black straw that has long been exposed to the dust and soot of London and has seldom, if ever, been brushed. Her hair needs washing rather badly. Its mousy color can hardly be natural. She wears a shoddy black coat that reaches nearly to her knees and is shaped to her waist. She has a brown skirt with a coarse apron. Her boots are much the worse for wear. She is no doubt as clean as she can afford to be, but compared to the ladies, she is very dirty. Her features are no worse than theirs, but their condition leaves something to be desired, and she needs the services of a dentist. Well, there it is. She's as clean as she can afford to be. This is a girl. I mean, she's just as pretty as anyone else, but she's dirty. But it's hard not to be dirty if you're living on the street. And of course, cleanliness, like accent, is a social ostracizer. And how is she treated? That's what we're supposed to notice. I mean, we have the Ainsford Hills here. Freddie's running around oblivious to what's going on. But Clara is rude. Higgins is flat out dehumanizing and insulting. But of course, Connor Pickering, who we will call the gentleman, is a perfect gentleman, even to the smelly, dirty, poorly spoken girl. Let's read the following exchange. How do you know that my son's name is Freddie, pray? Oh, eh, yo, asenezi, well, fade, you know, de booty, baza, mata, shade, na, bada, swabron, apparel girls, flowers, then a runaway, athen, pion, will you pay for them? Let's read Shaw's footnote about my pronunciation. He comments on it. Here, with apologies, this desperate attempt to represent her dialect without a phonetic alphabet must be abandoned as unintelligible outside London. I think I did the unintelligible part pretty well. But as any good socialist, what Shaw is highlighting is the social inequalities of class on display, both linguistically as well as through their behaviors. She's unintelligible. A bystander warns Eliza to be careful because a man is taking notes, and when he says that, she loses her mind. She thinks she's going to get arrested. Let me try these lines. Now that he put them in better English, I can read them better. I ain't done nothing wrong by speaking to the gentleman. I have a right to sell flowers I keep off the curb. I'm a respectable girl, so help me. I never spoke except to ask him to buy a flower off me. I mean, she's pretty hysterical. She says, oh, sir, don't let him charge me. You don't know what it means to me. They'll take away my character and drive me out on the streets for speaking to gentlemen. <laughs> and so her poverty is connected to her morality. I mean, the more poor you are, the more immoral you are is the assumption. And uh, by the end of her chat with Higgins, she is reiterating that she's a good girl with a right to be there, you know, to which an extremely snobbish Higgins responds by calling her cabbage. He's so rude, just like Shaw. It's funny. And somehow, Shaw can make him just as forgivable. You can't really hate Higgins. I mean, he's rude to everyone. You want to hit him, which, of course, is what happens to him. But let's read the back and forth. 
A woman who utters such depressing and disgusting sounds has no right to be anywhere, no right to live. Remember that you are a human being with a soul and the divine gift of articulate speech, that your native language is the language of Shakespeare and Milton and the Bible, and don't sit there crooning like a bilious pigeon. Quite overwhelmed and looking up at him in a mingled wonder and deprecation without daring to raise her head, Heavens, what a sound! Gone! You see this creature with her curbstone English, the English that will keep her in the gutter to the end of her days? Well, sir, in three months I could pass that girl off as a duchess at an ambassador's garden party. I could even get her a place as a lady's maid or a shop assistant, which requires better English. That's the sort of thing I do for commercial millionaires. And on the profits of it, I do genuine scientific work in phonetics and a little as a poet on Miltonic lines. What's that you say? Yes, you squashed cabbage leaf. You disgrace to the noble architecture of these columns. You incarnate insult to the English language. I could pass you off as the Queen of Sheba. Can you believe that? And there we have him. Shaw the Preacher, equality and inequality, the worth of humans is determined by criteria that is subjective, superficial, basically arbitrary. Speech is the cause and consequence of social deprivation. I mean, the insults are terrible. She's nothing but a squashed cabbage leaf. But by the end of Act 3, when Eliza meets the Ainsford Hills again, Clara, who's repulsed by her here, will revere her, even though Eliza still says crazy things. <laughs> I do want to bring up the kind of uh, English Eliza is supposed to be using, you know, the so-called, uh, it's the so-called Cockney dialect. And I'm not sure stigmatized today, but at the turn of the 20th century, it signaled that you were from lower class neighborhoods in London. Um, Henry Sweet, who the inspiration for Higgins, said this about it in his primer of spoken English. The Cockney dialect seems very ugly to the educated Englishman or woman because he, and still more she, lives in a perpetual terror of being taken for a Cockney. <laughs> you know, uh, but just don't take his word for it. Uh, a report on the teaching of English in elementary schools that was uh, published in 1909 said this, Most dialects have their own distinctive charm and historical interest, but Cockneyism seems to have no redeeming features <laughs> and need only to be heard to be condemned. And so we are the Ainsford Hills. We, as people who are rich enough to attend a play, or ju- are just the sort of kind of people that would judge Eliza because she's dirty, because she responds in inappropriate ways, because she's basically unintelligible when she talks. But let's take another look at Eliza. There's nothing common about her at all. She has self-respect. She's independent. She's brave. And when she gets money here, she does something she has never done before in her life. She takes a taxi. The beginning of the play, Sean Jack's instructions, where he says he's added lines to the play that are to be done only if the movie or if the play producers have money to create an elaborate set. The end of Act 1 has a section that's only to be done if you can afford to do it. It takes place inside Eliza's home there on the street. We're told in it she has a birdcage, a portrait of a popular actor, pieces of newspaper that she's pinned up to the wall, an alarm clock, and a few feeble coverings, which we would call blankets of some sort, but they're not very good at keeping her warm in the winter. 
Let's finish by reading Shaw's description of Eliza at the end of this big day. Here, Eliza, chronically weary but too excited to go to bed, sits counting her new riches and dreaming and planning what to do with them until the gas goes out, when she enjoys for the first time the sensation of being able to put in another penny without grudging it. This prodigal mood does not extinguish her gnawing sense of the need for economy sufficiently to prevent her from calculating that she can dream and plan in bed more cheaply and warmly than sitting up without a fire. So she takes off her shawl and skirt and adds them to the miscellaneous bedclothes. Then she kicks off her shoes and gets into bed without any further change. Eliza's not dumb. She's a dreamer. She can read. She's a counter. Shaw is not creating art for art's sake. He's presenting us with a problem. What should we do with Eliza? Well, Shaw will claim that this is life force at work. Yes, and the rest of the play will illustrate his line of reasoning. It really is a delightful way to see a political appeal. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Uh, And we hope that you'll join us as we continue our discussion. Until then, as always, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion of GBS. If you have, please share an episode with a friend or a colleague. Um, Introduce us to your friends. Also, if you're an educator, you're always invited to use our listening guides uh, in class or as homework. And you can find them on our website at uh, howtolovelitpodcast.com, where you can also find T-shirts, stickers, mugs, hoodies, all that fun stuff. Peace out. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 